Emily, it's awesome to have you back. So, she makes you feel a lot more relaxed when she gives that announcement about kids, and you think, I might trust my kids to that lady, but not to that other guy. So, um, it's good that uh, it's good that she's back. Um, We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Today we're going to look at what Jesus says here and also in uh, Matthew 19 uh, about uh, the issue of divorce. Um, And that's a a tough one, right? Uh, When you preach through um, uh, the Bible uh, in sequence, uh, you don't really have the opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, pick topics like what would Jesus say to Steph Curry or something like that. Um, And I know some of you don't even know who Steph Curry is, um, which would make that a very obscure sermon, even more obscure than what I just said. But um, anyway, uh, so as we walk through this text today, we're going to delve into some things that are very sensitive. Uh, uh, and what, by, what I mean by that is that are, that are real heart issues. And so, uh, in light of that, let me pray before, uh, before we read this text. Lord, uh, we uh, thank you today for the gift of marriage. We thank you today for uh, the joy and for uh, the uh, uh, grace uh, that is ours and, and witness to, to us uh, in uh, the institution of marriage. And so today I pray as we talk about uh, your words about it, about what your intention was at creation and uh, how that works itself out in our world, I pray that you would bless us, that you would help us, uh, that, uh, and above all, Lord, uh, that you would soften our hearts uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Matthew 5, 31 to 32, text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's a very direct, hard-hitting passage that that Jesus has placed uh, in front of us. And so uh, uh, just to pull these couple of verses out of the uh, overall teaching that Jesus does uh, on marriage and divorce would would be a mistake. So I also want us to read uh, um, uh, Matthew 19, where Jesus speaks to this as well, to help us get at this. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, and to send her away. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the real kicker on this, this text is the last verse, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. These are Jesus's boys, right? I mean, these, these, are, these aren't the Pharisees that are saying this. The, this, this is his own uh, inner circle, and they hear what he has to say about marriage, and they're like, no thanks. If what you say is true, not interested. Right? So as we, as we look at this uh, text today, I'm, I'm reminded, I thought it was really a great thing when the uh, uh, worship team was putting the um, bulletin together that at the very beginning of the order of worship uh, in preparation for worship and communion, we have the wedding vows from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and I, I, just, I just thought that was a, it's an interesting thing, and it reminded me of once... Several years ago, many years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Chicago, and um, that, you know, when pastors get together, just like when anybody in a certain profession gets together with other people in their profession, they complain a lot, you know, and they moan a lot and that kind of stuff. And I remember these guys talking a lot about <laughs> the difficulty of church membership and people being parts of churches and that kind of stuff. And one of the guys who was there, a, a man I respect a great deal, said, well, you know, you take vows when you join the church. You take vows when you get ordained. You take vows when you baptize a child. And you take vows when you, get a, when you get married. And I was like, okay, all right, where are you going with this? And then he said, you take vows for things that are hard. Right? Um, and so as we look at this uh, text today, and as we un unpack this, uh, I'm reminded, as I think about this, of some words I came across this week from John R.W. Stott on his commentary on this text. He says, I confess to a basic reluctance to an attempt at exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. Almost no tragedy so great as the disintegration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. So as, as we think about this today, I think that's something that's uh, important for us to uh, wrap our um, uh, minds around and to, uh, to think very, very clearly about. Now, in the context here, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus is in the section of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? So he is taking the religious traditions of the day of what the common viewpoint, what the rabbis were saying, this is what the Old Testament law means, and this is how you apply it to certain parts of, of life, and they were, they were most often wrong, right? And so when it comes to the issue of marriage and divorce, there were two primary schools uh, that the rabbis taught. One school, very similar to Jesus's, was the school of thought that said, there's no reason for a marriage to break apart unless there's some kind of severe uh, sexual immorality. 
in, uh, uh, in the marriage, that births uh, the covenant bond that's there. There was another viewpoint, and I, I'm not making this up when I say this, is that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, including you burnt the dinner. You just don't look as good as you used to. I don't like the way you uh, keep the house. I don't like the way you bring the water from the well. I don't like the way you wear your hair. I don't like that dress. And so the Pharisees, as we see from Matthew 19, were coming more from that school of thought that uh, men were dominant and they could do whatever they wanted to and so uh, 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 that they were free to find any reason to divorce whatsoever. And, and Jesus' disciples apparently were in that school of thought as well because if Jesus is going to begin to restrict the grounds for divorce, they're like, eh, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't want to, if, if that's the way it is, we'd be better off not to enter into that covenant at all. And so that's why Jesus, in his most formative teaching, when he talks about marriage and divorce, goes all the way back to creation. That's why Matthew 19 helps us understand what he's getting at here in Matthew 5. Because what Jesus does when he goes back to Matthew 19 is he begins to tell us what God's intention uh, for, for marriage is. And it's interesting, right? Because the Pharisees come up to him and they're like, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What Therefore, God has joined together. Let man not separate. In other words, what they're, what, what they're trying to get at is, what does Jesus view? You know, what's the grounds for divorce, Jesus? And Jesus isn't going to buy into their question. He doesn't, even, he doesn't accept the premise of their question. Because what Jesus wants them and us to see today is, is not here the escape clauses, here are the things that are necessities, necessary by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world, but here's God's design. We've already read this morning, too, the text where Adam is there in the garden and, and God brings to him all the animals and he names them. But there's not a helper there for him. There's not someone who corresponds to him. There's not someone there who uniquely will be in relationship with him. And so God causes Adam to fall asleep and he takes from him a rib and he forms from that rib a woman. And when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he is overwhelmed. He is struck by the beauty and the wonder and the grace and the power of the gift that God has given him in this woman. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is what I've been looking for. This is awesome. Thank you, God. You've given me the gift that, that I've, been, I've been looking for, the, the one thing that God said was not good in the garden, was that the man was alone. And now Adam says, not only is this good, it is terrific. It is wonderful. Thank you. And in just a few verses, that man will say, the woman you gave me, she did this. 
And, not, and, and, and by the way, did you hear what I said? The woman you gave me. It's not my problem. It's your problem, God. It's her problem. Right? And so what Jesus wants to get at here is something that's very, very, very important for us to get to at, at, at the beginning, right? Uh, that Jesus is more concerned with God's design for marriage than with grounds for divorce. Now, there are biblical grounds for divorce. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that today because one of the things that I've, I've recognized in, in the, the text is that when we spend all our time developing grounds for divorce, we are aligning ourselves with the Pharisees. Now, there are legitimate questions and legitimate things that the Bible has to say about that, but I think it's more important for us to get at the heart of what Jesus has to say to us today about marriage. So, Because Jesus sees marriage as a divine institution between a man and a woman that is exclusive and permanent. That's what he means when he says, when he goes back, this is the way it was in the beginning. And that's the whole point uh, that he's getting at. So rather than fall into the, having an argument with the Pharisees about uh, uh, the nature of whatever they're trying to come up with as a good grounds for divorce, he's like, you know what? None of that's important. What's important is for you to understand the gift of God. For you to understand the intention of God, that God loves you so much that he wants you to flourish. And part of your flourishing, part of the rich, wonderful life that he intends for you is he gives you this institution. And so it's a, it's a pretty, uh, it, it, it's important for us to, to kind of get that into our hearts and minds to begin with, to think about, because that's, that's what, where Jesus' heart uh, is in this, right? So when Jesus says that it's exclusive, that it's permanent, this one flesh union uh, that is uh, to be uh, permanent, when that marital bond is broken, it is a tragedy. It's a terrible thing. Uh, uh, and it is uh, a thing that... Uh, um, yeah, it is, it's, just, it's, it's a tragedy. It's not an irredeemable tragedy, and it's not the unforgivable, un, unforgivable or unpardoned, unpardonable sin, but it is a tragedy. And why is it a tragedy? Because the Pharisees want to press Jesus on this. And so they go to him and say, well, wait a minute, back there in Deuteronomy 24, there's this list of reasons where, where Moses says that you can give your wife a certificate of divorce. Well, there's a couple of things about that. I don't want to get too far into that. Uh, first of all, Moses never commands people to divorce. So they're, they, they, they misinterpreted that. But secondly, the certificate of divorce was given primarily to protect the woman. Uh, and then Jesus says something even more dramatic, that Moses only gives these caveats about marriage and divorce because of what? Because of the hardness of your heart. The hardness of your heart. Next slide, please, Luke. And so the, so the thing that we have to see about that is, and, and the thing that should jump out at us about that is, that that's what's going on here. 
that even his own disciples are gauging, thinking about their own marriages, and they're coming at it from the standpoint of some hardness of heart where they think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, I, I, I don't want to stay in this if she's not good looking anymore. I don't want to stay in this if, if she burns the dinner. I, I don't want to stay in this if, if, if she's difficult for me to live with. Now, we hear these words where Jesus says, you know, Moses allows you to do this because of the hardness of your hearts. We should take that, in, uh, we sh- we should take that to heart. We should take that very seriously, and we should think very clearly about what he's getting at there. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already addressed to us the, the pathway, the design of what good relationship is. Blessed are those who have poverty of spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, we, we t- tend to think about those, those commandments, those words there in the Beatitudes as something that we do out here in the culture with the people we live, uh, our roommates that we work with, but it becomes all the more real and all the more powerful when we understand that meekness, peacemaking, poverty of spirit, those are the ways, that is the way the gospel gets to us and comes to us in a way to change us, reorient us away from our natural bent, now that, we have been in, that we're in the fall, that, that it takes us away from our natural bent of hard-heartedness, cynicism, and being embittered against the people that we once thought were our soulmates. You know, it's, uh, when I was a young pastor, first, first uh, doing the thing that you do as a pastor, of marrying people and that, that kind of stuff, I just thought, you know, it is so cool to do this. And um, I, I did a, a, a wedding not long after I was ordained in Tennessee. And uh, it was this really big downtown church, really cool looking. I, I, I didn't really belong there, but it was a really... It was a really beautiful setting, and I got to wear a big black robe. I have one, by the way. Uh, I got to wear a big black robe, and Marty was sitting with a friend, and when I walked out of the door with the groom, this lady leaned over and said, doesn't that make you proud? You know, yeah, because here I am. I'm, I'm up here exercising this authority and doing all this, and it is a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but the thing that I've uh, come to in, in now some 30 uh, years, 35 years later, uh, is um, looking at the beautiful couple in front of me, marveling at what they're doing, and thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Because weddings are all about the future. A little bit about the past, but the vows begin with, will you, in the future? And so we commit ourselves, we put ourselves in a position where uh, we make these promises and we make these vows before our family and our friends, our church, and, and before God that we will 
be in this relationship, this covenant relationship with this other person, come what may. And there is so much in ourselves, so much in our spouses, so much in the world, so much in life to make us hard, to harden us against one another, to drive a wedge, a, a root of bitterness uh, into our marriages. It's a tragedy. And it's not just a tragedy because of the human wreckage and that sort of stuff that happens, which is certainly weighty and profound. But it's a cosmic tragedy. It's an eternal tragedy. It is a divine tragedy. Because you see, not only, we, we tend to think that marriage was given to human beings simply as a gift for our enjoyment, simply as a gift for maybe our development, simply as a gift maybe for to keep us, uh, uh, to have some companionship and those sorts of things. And all of those things are true. But the Bible points us and Jesus points us to something even higher. Because marriage witnesses to the gospel. You see, and it's not, and that's not just something that Jesus comes up with or Paul comes up with in the New Testament. If you read the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah in particular, and Hosea, what you see there is, is that God looks at his relationship with his Old Testament people, Israel. He looks at his relationship with them as he is the groom and they are his bride. And that he has, but he has married them, that, that he has tied himself to them. And their waywardness, their idolatry is spiritual adultery. And yet he continues to pursue. He continues to go after. He continues to go and buy them back from the process institution that they would sell themselves to because his heart is so turned towards his people. And so when we read in, in the scriptures about Jesus going back to the very beginning to talk about the design of that, he is speaking to us not just for our own happiness and not just for the good of society or the good of, of, the, of the social functioning and, and that sort of thing. He is pointing us out to something that has a deeper spiritual, a deeper personal truth that this marriage bears witness to the deep things of God, the deep things that, that Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises again, and that his atoning death, his, 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 uh, uh, the shedding of his blood, his love to us, his covenant commitment to us is unbreakable and unshakable. So that what we see and we will rehearse this here shortly, is that history ends in a marriage feast. That the last scene that we see at the end of God's revelation is all of the people of God gathered together with Jesus, our groom, who by virtue of his death, who by virtue of his sacrifice, uh, brings us into covenant relationship with him, and that we celebrate that covenant relationship with a feast uh, in his presence with his father. 
You see, that, that's, that's the great thing that, that marriage uh, is for us. And so that when our sin and our hard-heartedness and our coldness towards one another uh, wears that down or wears away at that, it's not just an issue of we have a relational difficulty here. We have a spiritual difficulty here because our marriage bears witness to the eternal work that God is doing in and for his people in Jesus Christ. As we come to the table today, we will remember uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We will remember the fact that he lived, died, and rose again for us. But we also are rehearsing. It's a rehearsal for what we will experience uh, in eternity. The marriage feast of the Lamb. Hear these words of institution. Mark 14 says this, The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank, all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's use this confession of sin uh, to confess our sins. Good and gracious God, we lay our sins before you, confessing we have not lived in light of your promises. We have scrambled in fear, not trusting you in relationships and circumstances putting our hope in wealth and accomplishment, and demanding comfort. We seek to control our lives through addiction and self-righteousness, refusing to listen to your word and given to cynicism and anger. We have sought to pay for our sins through shame and guilt by seeking to do good works to gain favor and by not believing that we are forgiven. We have exacted payment from others without grace. We have only lived for this life, centering our lives on created things instead of you, demanding more and being self-centered, disregarding those around us. Because Jesus lived, died, was raised, and ascended into heaven, we confess our sins with a great confidence that you accept Forgive and renew us. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name and he gave it to his disciples. Hard-heartedness. It's a tough one, isn't it? One that we often justify. Uh, one that uh, we think we have no way out of. Uh, and one that is, um, it's, well, let me just say what it is. Hard-heartedness is ugly, cold, not life-giving. In fact, it's full of death. And sometimes we think that our hard-heartedness is so powerful and so overwhelming that it is impossible to escape, that it is impossible, that there's nothing that could change the hardness of our hearts. We can be cold. This week, um, I've spent a lot of time staring out the window looking at the world outside. And one of the things I have been amazed at is watching snow melt. <laughs> now, you, you may be thinking, well, that's, that's exciting. That's uh, it's pretty dynamic. But uh, actually, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd rather watch snow melt than just about anything else, actually. And the thing that has amazed me is on days where it's still 25 degrees, but the sun's out, it melts the snow. Even though that snow exists in an environment where it's been piled up and it's cold and it's kind of rock hard, you see water dripping off of it, even in an environment that's below freezing because the sun's shining on it. It's powerful. It's profound. As I, I've been sitting there staring at that and contemplating what, what that's like. Well, this table is the light of the grace of God. And you think your hardness is so hard that the light of Jesus Christ can't melt you? Can't melt the hardness <clears throat> of someone you love? You see, that's the issue for us today. And Jesus gets cuts right to the chase with that, right? That, that the fact is that hard-heartedness, uh, we run to that. We embrace that because we think that's where life is. But life actually is found in the love of God to us in Jesus Christ that melts our hard-heartedness, that removes the stony, cold heart, and gives us a soft heart. As we come to the table today, we have that opportunity because Jesus is saying to you today that he loves you. And that's not just in some sort of generalized, some sort of soft way. Jesus loves you enough to die for you. That his love is 
witnessed to us by a cross. That his love is witnessed to us by sacrifice and suffering. And that kind of love changes us from the inside out. And so as we come to the table today, we confess, Jesus, we are hard-hearted people, bitter, cold, cynical. And yet your love, your pursuit, is like the sun. And little by little, bit by bit, the recognition and the proclamation and the, the, the seeing of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his love for us, melts us, softens us. I pray that that would be your experience this morning. I pray that that would be my experience, that Jesus would do that in us and for us, through us. We proclaim his death until he comes because we proclaim his love until he comes. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other faith, no other hope except in Jesus, and even though this week you were tempted to be cold and embittered and hard-hearted, he still pursues you. If that's true of you, you proclaim your hope, your faith to a body of believers somewhere, this God who pursues the wayward, who pursues the spiritual adulterer, woos you back, draws you back, warms you with the heat and the sun of his love. That's why he gives us this table. That's why he gives us this thing to do to remind us of the truth of his love for us. As the elders come down to assist me, let me tell you a couple of practical things. As you come forward, you'll note that there are stations for uh, gluten-free bread and wine and gluten-free bread and uh, grape juice. Uh, there'll be a cup with juice in it or wine in it with a, another cup underneath it with a tiny wafer of gluten-free bread. Uh, if you're not able to come forward uh, uh, to, to take, raise your hand, and we will uh, make sure that you're served. Once everyone is served, uh, we will eat the bread and drink the cup together.